0: following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. The Flannelgraph series is is well underway now. This is the third week of four weeks, and the goal during this series is to tell the entire story of the Old Testament, to tell the story of the entire Old Testament, in just four sermons, using a wonderful, old-fashioned church device called the Flannelgraph. If you are a a Sunday school veteran, as I am, you probably have seen flannel graphs many, many times, never one so uh, beautiful and big and imposing as this one, perhaps, but the flannel graph is a a time-tested tool for teaching toddlers. Um, (laughs) Ah, yes, that was not in my notes, but um, it is a fun way to engage with the stories, and obviously, because of the pace that we're taking, we can't do every bit of it, right? We're, there's going to be parts of the Old Testament that we have to leave out. I apologize in advance or um, after the fact, as the case may be, for if I ever skip your favorite Old Testament story, um, it's, I swear it's not intentional. Um, the other thing is that the sermons take a little bit longer, and that's why we've been cutting a song out of our liturgy, and we've been cutting that pre-sermon prayer, which I know is very important to many of you. It's important to me. And we'll resume it again as soon as this series is over and the, the preaching gets a little bit more reasonable in duration. So, last week in Flannel Graph week two, we talked about how Moses led God's people out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness where they received the law on the stone tablets. And I mentioned how Moses sinned against God in his pride and so was, was told by God, you are not going to enter the promised land. And so the people wandered for for these 40 years, and uh, the leadership of the people of Israel was transferred from Moses to Joshua. Now, we are mostly going to skip Joshua's story, even though it is a pretty significant piece of the Old Testament, Um, but I do want to pause before we get underway uh, to stop and talk briefly about one of the really disturbing things about the Bible. I know from talking with many of you over the years that this is a very difficult thing for you to grasp and, and accept in the Bible. It's a very difficult thing for me to grasp and accept in the Bible. And I, a lot of it is contained in Joshua's story. And so I don't want you to think that I'm skipping Joshua's story so I can avoid or dodge this particular thing. And what I'm talking about is the fact that all throughout the flannel graph, we have seen the hand of God leading the way, right? But what do we do with the fact that the hand of God so often seems to be wielding a sword. That the people enter the promised land stepping over the corpses of those that they have slaughtered on their way. How do we reconcile that with a God of love? How do we make sense of the fact that there appears to be acts of genocide concomitant with The working out of God's will? Well, it's a question that is fair to ask. (laughs) Absolutely. It's unfair to try to answer it in three or four minutes, but I'm going to try anyway. And what I'll do is offer three Three little concepts, not little concepts, but three concepts that, that might help. They might help a little bit. One of them might help you today. One of them might help you on Thursday. One of them might help you 10 years from now. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they, none of them will help you at all in the moment, and you'll still have that tension. And that's okay. We live in that tension. And um, if there's one thing we're not uh, afraid of at Artisan, it's, it's the tension and realities of, of what it means to be people of faith. Um, We don't like to pretend. Sometimes we do end up pretending, but we don't like to. And we try to make space for people to be real and not pretend as much as we can. So here's the first concept. Firstly, realize that the wars themselves and the cause of the wars are actually a failure on the part of Israel to live up to the calling that God has placed on their life. So when God called Abraham, he said, I'm going to make of you a great nation and I will bless you so that you can be a blessing. Through you and your family, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Now that's not, as as is so often the case, dare I say, um, maybe almost always, maybe always is the case. When when God says something like that, it's not like just going to automatically go, right? That's what he is calling them to. They are not robots, they have to do it, and so often they don't. They fail to be a blessing to their neighbors, and there's passages in the Bible where it says they did this, and they became a stench to their neighbors, right? When you see that, it's kind of like a clue. Israel is screwing up this relationship with those around them. They are not blessing them. They are instigating the problem in some cases, Right. And that uh, sometimes is a direct cause of war, and other times it's a, an underlying cause that sets this this enmity between these groups. Okay, so that's the first concept. That in some ways this comes about as a result of Israel's failure to live up to the calling that God's given them. Second concept. And this one is a little bit more obtuse. I'm only going to breeze over it. It's entirely unfair. But recognize what the author of a particular section of the Bible is trying to do. Recognize that those authors have their own perspectives, their own biases, just as we do. And it doesn't diminish the fact that the Bible is the inspired word of God. It doesn't diminish the fact that it's what we use to be shaped into his likeness, right? To say that some of the people, the writers of the Bible are in favor of the uh, priestly order <laughs> and the law. And some of the writers of the Bible are more in favor of the prophetic thing, which is less concerned with the exactness of living out the, the law and more concerned with applying it and, and reaching out to the poor and loving them and so forth. And so there are certain passages where um, entire cities are are obliterated completely, right? And this, the language, if you look at it, is very similar to the language of sacrificial system, where sometimes there's sacrifices where we we cook the, the, uh, the goat and eat it and enjoy it as part of our sacrifice. And then there's sometimes when we c- completely consume, the, the goat is completely consumed in the act of sacrifice, right? So um, that may seem like a very long stretch to obliterating an entire town of people. I understand that. It's not fair for me to throw it out there and walk away from it. But understand the perspective of the different authors of the Bible. Remember, it's a story. It tells one story, but it tells it in a lot of different voices, right? So that's the second concept. And the third concept is by far the most important one, which is that we as Christians have to read these stories through Christological lenses, right? So so the sword can be replaced with, the, with a cross, right? That's Jesus on a throne, which will come up later. There's Jesus on the cross over there. Dave, can you get me Jesus on the cross, please? Uh, we have the right, I want to have the right imagery here in your mind. Because this is actually, isn't, it's, i mean, being silly, but it's really important, right? So, Jesus is what God is like, right? If you want to know the, the purest distillation and see it of, of God's heart, Look to his son, humiliated and crucified, submitting willingly to the violence of death on a cross, not raising a finger in retaliation or objection, but going to the cross. That is what God is like. God has always been like Jesus, right? We don't always apply it. We don't always see it. We don't always think about it. But that is who God is. And so, if a biblical story seems to present a different God than would be submitting himself to death on a cross without retaliation, then either we are not ent- understanding the entirety of that story or that story, while part of the biblical canon, is not telling the specific truth about God that we think most important right now you church history nerds and theology nerds and stuff will recognize that going too far in this road you know has led some people astray from what we consider orthodox christian belief Um, the rest of you don't care but I just I know that there are those of you who are going what about the like okay just let if you're a theology nerd sometimes you just have to let it go right that's the most important way to me. And, and you know, we've, we've sung this song a few times that um, I wrote recently, and I'm not trying to, like, say, oh, look at me, I'm a songwriter. Just, like, the song, uh, Jesus, It Is Only You, that we've done a few times, that is the prayer of my heart that we would think that way, that every moment spent in dread, every Canaanite who bled, you know, I, I, I see all of this through your cross, right? That is, that is who we need to be as a people, Okay. That was longer than three or four minutes, which means that we're going to be later than we should be when we're done. But, uh, you know, you don't want to, f- is it okay that I took a little bit longer with that? Like, you don't want to just breeze over that. All right, so all that having been said, let's take a look at what happens when Joshua dies. And I am like Captain Unprepared this morning. Can I have a red Bible, please? I got it. We're lousy with Bibles at Artisan. No worries. They're all over the place. By the way, if you don't own a Bible, you are more than welcome to take one of these red ones home with you. Here's what happens after Joshua dies. Now, Moses has transferred leadership to Joshua. Joshua leads them through the, to the promised land, and then he eventually dies. And in, we're going to look at the book of Judges first this morning. And uh, chapter 2, verse 11, I have it on page 190 in the red Bibles. I don't have it on the screen right now, but... Then the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and worshipped the Baals, which we will just say Baals because it's more Englishy and it's easier. It's the Canaanite pantheon. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were all around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and worshipped Baal and the Astartes. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the power of their enemies all around so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them to bring misfortune as the Lord had warned them and sworn to them and they were in great distress. Verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges. who delivered them out of the power of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen even to their judges, for they lusted after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their ancestors had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord. They did not follow their example. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord would be moved to pity by their groaning. But whenever the judge died, and here's the recurring theme that we will see, whenever the judge died, they would relapse and behave worse than their ancestors, following other gods, worshiping them, and bowing down to them. So this is the pattern that we see. A pattern of disobedience, which leads to strife, and then God raises up a judge, and the judge is like slightly less screwed up than the rest of the community, and he or she leads them for a time, and things improve, and then the judge dies, and they go back to their old ways, right? Now, we think of judges like Judge Judy, right? She's my favorite judge. I would tell you my favorite Supreme Court judge, but that would be a bad idea, wouldn't it? (laughs) There is no right answer there. We think of Judge Judy's, but these judges are more like kind of chieftains of the, the tribe of Israel, right? So they're, most often they're military leaders, Sometimes they sit in judgment. Um, now, that's actually the case with the first judge that we're going to talk about, who is Deborah. Now, we're going to have three judges this morning. Think of them as the homecoming queen, the band geek, and the dumb jock. All right, so Israel had 12 or 13 judges. but We're going to go with these three, the homecoming queen, the band geek, and the dumb jock. The first one is Deborah, and she is the homecoming queen, right? Here's Deborah over here, and the Bible says about Deborah in Judges 4 and 5, uh, starts out by saying that she would sit under the palm of Deborah, the palm tree of Deborah, which is an eponymous name, probably right, Ep- eponymous, right? Uh, it's the palm of Deborah, she sits under it and actually does judge the people, but she is also a military leader, a commander of the people, which in this weird patriarchal society that we have been studying, that might seem a little bit unusual, doesn't it? Well, she was pretty tough. So let's read Judges chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. Um, here. So Deborah sent and summoned Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, And said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you go and take position at Mount Tabor, bringing 10,000 from the tribe of Naphtali and the tribe of Zebulun. I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army. Now, King Jabin is the king of the Canaanites who are coming against the Israelites in this story. And I will give him into your hand. Now, Barak, the, the, the army captain here, says to her, Get this. He says to the judge, Deborah, if you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. (laughs) That's what you want in a military captain, right? And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Now, um, into which woman is the Lord going to sell the hand of Sisera, the Canaanite captain? Not Deborah, actually. <laughs> Deborah and um, uh, Barak go, and they have this battle, and they, they win the battle. But Sisera, the general, escapes, and he runs, right? And he runs to uh, a woman named Jael, and he says to her, um, she, she says, come into my tent and, and rest a while, basically. He's been on the run from this army, right? Um, no, it's not like that. It's not like that at all. <laughs> he says, give me some water. And she goes, you know what? How about some, some milk instead? She gives him some milk. And he says, put a, put a rug over me. So she puts him up in the rug, and he's got his little bottle of milk, and he's been on the run, and he's very tired, and he falls asleep. Should not have fallen asleep. Because it says she went to, into the tent to him, and put a tent peg against his temple and drove it through his head until it went into the ground. Yeah. Jael. She's, like, she's going to get a bad review on Tinder or whatever these dating things are. Like that's, <laughs> I barely know what that even means. I'm sorry. <laughs> so he has been... Yeah, Airbnb. Airbnb. <laughs> One star would not visit again. He's not around to leave a review on Airbnb. He's dead. He's been delivered into the hands of a woman, just as Deborah predicted. So um, Deborah has brought this victory about, uh, the final nail in the coffin. comes from Jael. And then what does Deborah do? She writes a song on the spot and sings it. Right, so Deborah is an an excellent judge. Right? She has her juris doctorate. Right? She is a military captain and a good one, and she's a singer songwriter. <laughs> Deborah is one of those people. <laughs> like, you know those people, right? Like, uh, of course, of course, you play. Yes, of course, you play the cello, right? You're awesome in all these ways, and of course, you play the cello too, right? That's not a, you may or may not be awesome in all those ways. I don't really know Esther, but um, this kind of thing makes you wonder: Do you have to be a superstar, like a five sport, five tool athlete, for God to use you? And if we just had one judge to look at this morning, you might worry that that was the case. But we don't have just one judge; we have three judges, and the other two are like. They're not exactly all stars. Right? So uh, take heart people who don't, you know, have a, a, an advanced degree and know military stuff and can write songs on the spot. Right? Not everybody can be Deborah, and not everybody has to be Deborah. I'm being flippant, but the truth is that God uses all kinds of really screwed up, stupid people uh, throughout the whole story of Scripture and beyond, right, because he's using all of us. So our next judge is Gideon. I love this particular image of Gideon. He's just he's just chilling down there threshing wheat. He looks a little bit like the guy from Spinal Tap, you know. He <laughs> he's looks kind of looks like he's painting a picture actually, which is not what he's doing. But I think I like to imagine him painting pictures in my head um, because he's just he's sort of a um, reluctant hero, if you will. So, let's look at Judges chapter 6. I can get the page to turn. There we go. Chapter 6, verse 1, a familiar refrain. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Skip ahead to verse 7. When the Israelites cried to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites and he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I had led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of all who oppressed you, drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not pay reverence to the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not given heed to my voice. And so he raises up a new judge. And it's Gideon. And Gideon is threshing wheat and uh, an angel of the Lord comes to him. Verse 11. Verse 12. It uh, The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. Which seems like it might be a slightly ironic name. <laughs> um, given Gideon's immediate response. Now it does come true to a certain extent. But the Angel calls him to deliver the Israelites from the Midianites. And he argues with the angel a little bit. He's like, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm that guy. Maybe you could give me a sign. And so he makes a sacrifice and the angel touches it and it bursts into flame. And he's like, oh, you must be an angel. Right? <laughs> I've been trying to tell you. I'm a messenger from God. But he sort of believes. And then he actually asks for more signs, right? And so if you've ever heard the phrase putting out a fleece, To test God? The origin of that phrase is in the story of Gideon. And so, what he asks God to do, he says, okay, God, I'm going to... Let's put the tree up here and Gideon down here. I'm going to put out a fleece, like an animal skin, sheep skin, right? And what I want you to do is... If you are with me, when I wake up tomorrow, I would really like to see that the fleece is wet, but the ground all around it is dry. And so sure enough, he goes to bed, he wakes up, he grabs the fleece, it's soaking wet, he wrings it out and fills a whole bowl with water, but the ground all around it is dry. And what does he do? He does what we all do when we think we're asking for a sign from God and we think if it's just this one thing would happen, then I could believe. And the thing happens, not every time, but sometimes it does, and we still don't believe. This is why asking a God for a sign is usually not a very good idea because you're not going to believe it even if it happens. So he says, okay, God, I'm, I'm sorry to be sheepish. Uh, uh, that was a bad joke. Sorry to ram a pun in there. (laughs) You're wondering, will he ever stop? (laughs) Mm. So he says, this time I want to wake up and find the ground wet, but the fleece dry. God says, okay, fine, Gideon, go to sleep. Gideon goes to sleep, wakes up, finds that the ground is wet, but the fleece is dry. And so then he believes, So he gathers 32,000 troops from the Israelites. But God says to him, you seem like you have too many people there. I suspect, given what I know about you and the fleeces, that... If you win this battle with 32,000 troops, you're going to think that it was under your own power and theirs rather than under my power. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to your troops and ask them to raise their hand if they're afraid right now. And so he goes to the troops of 32,000, raise uh, raise your hand if you're afraid right now, and 22,000 people raise their hand. And he says, okay, you 22,000 can go away. He's left with 10,000. God says, that's still too many. That's a lot of people. If you were to win the battle with 10,000 people, you'd probably think it was under your own strength or theirs. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to separate them into two groups. And here's how you do it, Gideon. I want you to ask them all to take a drink from the water. And I want you to set aside the group of people who kneel down and drink with their hands from the people who kneel down and lap up the water like a dog. Gideon is probably thinking, that's a good idea. I definitely would not want to go into battle with the dumb mouth breathers who would lay down on their belly and drink water out of the river like a dog. So 9,700 of them drink like all of us would with their hands, and 300 of them drink like a dog. And Gideon separates them into two groups, and he says, okay, send the 9,700 home, you have 300 to work with. <laughs> that is not how I was hoping that would go, Gideon thinks to himself, but here we are: Three hundred people. And then he says to them, "Give them all trumpets." And clay pots. So Gideon has an army of 300 music and art students <laughs> to go fight against the Midianites. So he divides them into three companies, and they surround the Midianite encampment at night in three companies of 100 each. And at an appointed time, they all blow their horns, the trumpets, right? Right? And they break their jars and inside there's torches. It's going to be a rave. (laughs) So the Midianites, they've done this right at the time of the the changing of the watch. So there's very few people awake. They hear 300 trumpets going and they look around and see all these um, blinking torch lights and hear the shattering of pots and things. And they're so terrified that they uh, get up, draw their swords and just start swinging them. And they obliterate themselves. Their entire army is demolished this way. And Gideon and his 300 music and art students are triumphant over this entire pagan horde. The lesson, if you haven't picked up on it yet, is that it is God who secures our victory. There's nothing we bring to the table that is sufficient to do this on our own. And sometimes it seems that God breaks us down so much to such the tiniest little particle of who we think we are, so that when his work is accomplished in our lives and through us to the lives of those around us, we have no choice but to acknowledge that it is his work and not ours. That's the lesson of Gideon, the band geek. So our third judge this morning, the last and... Maybe the worst is the uh, the dumb jock, right? Steve Holt. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's Samson, isn't it? Judges chapter 13 begins with these words. I'm having the worst time turning pages this morning. There we go. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Recurring theme. And the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines. Forty years. So Samson is born to a woman. Can you guess how this particular woman is afflicted? She is barren. Of course, she's barren. Every significant birth, it seems, in Israel's history is to a woman who prior to that point, had not been able to give birth. It's another sign of God's provision and involvement. Now, from birth, Samson is consecrated to the vow of the Nazarite. The Nazarite vow is this. Uh, a person who takes the Nazarite vow vows never to consume any alcohol, which God does not forbid, by and large, as a, you know, a across-the-board sort of thing. But a Nazarite would not consume any alcohol, would never cut their hair or shave their beard, and would be extra careful around unclean things. Right? So Samson is consecrated as a Nazarite before he's even born. His mom says, this is the path you're going to go. You're a miracle baby. This is how it's going to be. And of course, what we all know about Samson is that he is What? Strong, he is super strong. I will spare you the 1989 rap song from the Christian music industry about Samson being so, so strong. Some of you uh, have had the misfortune of hearing it, so you have it in your head already. Uh, One of Samson's early feats is to kill a lion with his bare hands. He rips it apart, the Bible says, like you'd rip apart a kid, meaning a a little goat, not a little human, (laughs) I think. Now, guys who are super strong, they always end up doing just what's right, don't they? (laughs) Yeah. What we see in in the story of Samson is that he is pretty much universally, without fail, an idiot. He messes this up six ways from Sunday. One of the things he does is after he kills this lion, Now, remember, he's a Nazarite. He's not supposed to touch dead things. So if you don't want to touch things, maybe you shouldn't make dead things. (laughs) But he does it, and he goes away, and he comes back who knows how long later, and there's honeybees in there. And he's like, I like honey. And he reaches into the carcass of this lion and takes the honey, and then he goes and gives some to his family. I found this honey. Did you find that honey in a dead thing? "Uh Uh-uh. It was in a a tree, right? (laughs) Samson is not the sharpest tool in the drawer. Shed. Knife in the drawer. Tool in the shed. Shed bulb in the... I don't know. Yeah. So he's not great romantically either. His first wife is a Philistine woman. Probably not a good idea. Then he takes up with a prostitute. And then he marries Delilah, who is just such a peach of a woman. She immediately sells him out to his enemies for a whole pile of silver... He, she finds out from him what his weakness is, right? Do you remember what his weakness is? It's his hair. He has magical hair, right? His hair gives him his strength, and when they cut his hair off, he doesn't have it anymore. Well, yeah, that's kind of how the story goes, but remember, the long hair is a sign of the vow that he's been consecrated to, to the Lord, right? So it's kind of like him digging the honey out of the carcass, He's saying, sure, I'm a Nazarite, I guess, <laughs> except when I want dead bear honey, right? <laughs> dead lion honey. Dead lion honey, that sounds like a hipster band name or something. they <laughs> have got like three banjos in that band, you can tell. <laughs> so the, the hair is the outward sign of the inward relationship that he has, and he's completely dismissive of it by telling Delilah, who if you read this story, it's mind-boggling because she keeps tying him up and he keeps lying to her and he keeps breaking free. And so she keeps tying, because, like, it's very clear what she's trying to do is get him killed and he keeps like, no, she's, she probably loves me. Um, she surely wouldn't deliver me in the hands of my enemies. I'll, I'll tell her the truth. It's my hair. And he wakes up and, he, you know, his, the Philistines are grabbing him and gouging his eyes out and they imprison him. And... Uh, the, the end of the story of Samson is that he is chained to the, the walls of a, the, the pillars of a building because they've brought him out as a sideshow at their party, right? and he prays that God will allow him one more bit of strength to have vengeance upon his enemies. And he says, "I'm going to go down with them." And he does the he pu- pushes the columns over, and the building collapses and kills them all and him. Flannelgraph. So that's the end of the period of Judges. We have a transition at the end of the book, which contains some scenes of very brutal graphic violence, which are unsuitable for children's ears and and in many ways are very troubling to adult ears, as I kind of mentioned earlier. But the book of Judges concludes with this verse, Judges 21-25, "...in those days there was no king in Israel, and all the people did what was right in their own eyes." The end. (laughs) The end. The Bible books don't always have happy endings. This one certainly doesn't. The next book in the Bible is the book of Ruth, which we don't have time to go into today. It's a very interesting story, very, very interesting story. We just don't have time to do it right now. But it does set up a genealogy that gets us to David, the descendant of Ruth, who will be Israel's favored king. Before we can get to David, we have to go, we have to go through Samuel. All right. So the book of 1 Samuel is where this story begins to unfold. Samuel was a priest and judge of Israel. He was another one of those multi-tool spiritual athletes. And he was kind of a, uh, if you'll pardon the expression, a, a transitional species from the period of judges to the period of kings. And here's... Here's the hinge of this story. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Samuel 8, chapter 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, You are old. This is not a good way to start a conversation, by the way. And your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us then a king to govern us like other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel, and he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Just as they've done to me from the day I brought them out of Egypt to this day, they've rejected me. Samuel reported all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, if you want a king, this is what will happen to you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to... And they're like, yes, we want a king. We are determined to have a king over us, verse 19 and verse 20, so that we may also be like other nations. The repetition of that phrase is instructive, is it not? The people wanted to be like everybody around them. We all want to be like everybody around us, don't we? So the first king that Samuel anoints is King Saul. Even though we know from the end of Ruth that David is who we're looking for. Saul looks the part. He's handsome and he's tall. And he's anointed king, and he, for a time, has some success. He defeats Israel's enemies, but then he disobeys God. And very early in his reign, God tells him, you're going to be displaced. I'll let you people have a good chance to see this stuff as we go on here. At first Samuel thirteen thirteen. Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him to be ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, Saul is a lame duck, but he is still the king. You know how badly and uh, carelessly presidents sometimes act when they're lame ducks? Kings are worse. And he continues to sin and be disobedient to God. To the point where God says this truly remarkable thing. Which many times theologians have said, oh, it's a metaphor for something. It's not what it really means. But what it says is, verse 10 of chapter 15, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. There's some big time theological implications to the idea that God can say that he regrets doing something but they're not suitable for flannel graph and we don't have time for them. So at this point, David is introduced into the text. David's still over here. I knew that pile couldn't have been big enough. So David is so important to the story of Israel that he is given three separate introductions in the text. The first one... is when Samuel anoints him, and there's the story where he goes to the town and finds Jesse and all of his sons, and he brings out the tallest, most handsome one, the one that looks most like Saul. And the Lord says, nope, that's not him. And they go through one after the other after the other, and they're all gone. And finally he says, don't you have any more sons? And he says, well, I have a, the a little guy. He's tending the flocks right now. He, like, plays the harp. <laughs> Samuel says, bring him out. And there he is. That's your king. The second introduction that we get to David in the text is when he's introduced as a a wonderful musician. This is just for all of you who complained this week that you got a U2 album on your phone that you didn't want. Do you realize what a first world problem that is? Raise your hand if you complained this week that you got a U2 album for free on iTunes or in your phone and you didn't want it. Go ahead, raise your hand. You are lying, because I know some of you did. If you're sitting next to somebody raising their hand, would you please smack them right now? No, I'm just kidding. Don't smack them right now. Smack them later. But no, uh, David is a, a musician. He plays the lyre, the harp, the stringed instruments. And he's actually called into Saul's chambers when Saul is having a problem getting to sleep. And David sings him a song and lulls him to sleep. And then the third introduction we get to David is the most famous one by far. It's when he defeats the Philistine champion, the giant, Goliath. You know this story, right? It's amazing. This little boy, who doesn't even fit into a warrior's armor, goes out to meet this seven, eight, nine, 10-foot giant, the Philistine champion. And he defeats him with five smooth stones. Well, he collects five. He only actually uses one. He takes the sling and hits Goliath. And Goliath falls down unconscious. And they put him in a cage and he never bothers them again. That's not quite what happens, actually. He falls down and David cuts his head off. <coughs> Flannel graph. So David ascends to the throne and there's much to be told about his story. Much to be told. He's a very complicated person. He sins in lots of different ways and God restores him in lots of different beautiful ways. The story of David is primarily told in 2nd Samuel, but of course you can't understand David without reading the Psalms as well because he wrote so many of them. We're not going to go into David any further this morning it is in David that the monarchy of Israel becomes a hereditary dynasty, right? Now, God says, I would have done this for Saul, but he disobeyed me. And so David's son, Solomon, becomes the next king of Israel. And Solomon is famous, of course, because he is, uh, God offers to give him anything, and he asks for wisdom rather than riches or wives or military domination, and then God says, because you asked for wisdom, I'll give you that and all the other things. And so Solomon um, wrote big lists of Proverbs. And if you've read Proverbs, a lot of that is attributed to Solomon. And much of the wisdom literature has Solomon's fingerprints on it in one way or another. And uh, very importantly, he also constructs the temple. At last, this wandering tribe of nomads, has a home and a central location in which they can worship. And from that day on, everything went right. (laughs) No, it didn't. Cliffhanger. Come back next week and every week afterwards. (laughs) But as we think about the kings of Israel... What we need to understand is that a throne only seats one king, and the king of heaven and earth and of all of us is Jesus. Right. I'm not trying to just sprinkle Jesus dust on the end of an Old Testament sermon. The, the reign the disastrous reign of kings, it's terrible even in these first three, and they're like a hundred times better than all the ones that follow them. The disastrous reign of human kings tells us that there is only one king for us to have. And that king is Jesus. That's a remarkably controversial statement for anybody who's actually in a monarchy. (laughs) Like the one that was around at the time of Jesus' first followers, which is why so many of them got burned alive, crucified, and fed to the lions. It's actually also a very remarkable thing to say to those of us who are part of a, uh, what do you call this, a constitutional republic? Because we still want rulers to be our kings. We still are more interested in the kingdom of USA than we are of the kingdom of God. We are still more interested in a a president or a senator or a mayor who can solve all our problems instead of submitting and bowing our knees to the king of the world, Jesus. That's what the whole story points to, isn't it? Jesus fills the space on the top of the Ark of the Covenant where God resides. He comes out of the empty tomb between those two angels. He sits on David's throne. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. He is the high priest. He is all of that. All of those parts of Israel's story that point to God can be understood and must be understood Through Christological lenses, the story of Jesus is our story. And it's that to which I now invite you to come and celebrate communion together. When we take communion, it is many things. It is an act of remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice. We talk about how the bread is his body, the wine is his blood. And the the destruction that happened to his human body is where we find our knowledge of God. It's where we find our forgiveness. And so when we come to the table, we remember that. We also receive for ourselves spiritual food. We receive the manna of our time. And in so doing, we're united one to another, which is why we call it Communion. And so now we have a couple more songs to sing together in worship. The communion table is open at Artisan to all who seek to follow Jesus in this place. You do not need to be a member of our church, of our denomination, or any church or denomination. You have simply to be seeking to follow Jesus and placing your trust in him. Let's pray together and then the communion table will be open. Lord, we thank you for your blessings, for the stories of Scripture how we find in them the histories of how your people have tried and failed and tried and failed and tried and and failed to follow you, how we find in them also little whispers of the name of Jesus. And it's in his name that we trust. It's in him that we seek to follow you most fully. As we come to the table, may this be for us the body and blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, speak to each one of us now. Call us to the response that you have for us, we pray. Amen. Our table is open. There's space for prayer here with a member of the prayer team if you wish. Respond to the words of Scripture and the Word of God, however he may be leading you to do so. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.